Welcome to the Schoolhouse Podcast, where it is jumping. All right. Um, the goal and objective of this Schoolhouse Podcast is to provide a safe place for educators. Before we get started, if your school or district is looking for someone to come speak for someone to come speak to your students, um, please email me at purposeoriginatepurpose.com. I specialize in speaking to students about managing their emotions and character development. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Sherrod. How you doing today, Sherrod? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, man. I'm feeling pretty good today. So um, I'd like to allow the guests to tell the people about themselves because no one can tell your story how you can. So if you could kind of tell the people about, you know, who you are, where you're from, your credentials, your background, things, et cetera. Sure. So my name is Sherrod Laws. I hail from Durham, North Carolina originally, but I live in Asheville, North Carolina right now as we speak. And I am a 15-year veteran educator where I spent 12 years of my time as a Spanish teacher going from kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade. And I've also taught in public, private, and charter schools. And this is my third year as a school administrator. This is my second year here in Asheville, North Carolina, where I work at IC Imagine Public Charter School. And before I came to IC Imagine Public Charter School, I was a dean of students at the now defunct Blue Green Academy, which was located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And so I have been, I've always wanted to be an educator. Um, I've wanted to be a Spanish teacher and I think since the age of five, I wanted to be in education just because of some things that happened in my life and they kind of shaped my path for me and mm -hmm. um, bilingual Spanish speaking. And I use it almost on a daily basis. You speak Spanish. Wow. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. That's a, yes, that's a, that's a pretty good skill set to have. It really is. Yes, so sir. now do you mind telling people about, you said, some of the things that transpired in your life that kind of helped you lead to education? Do you mind explaining some of those things that happened in your life? I don't mind at all. Okay. So so being a, so now, you know, being a man of color um, in a school system that was already rigged against me, back mm -hmm. when I was in kindergarten, I remember vividly, I could not talk until I was five years old. So I went to a special needs pre-K before I started kindergarten. And when I was in kindergarten, I remember the conversation that the kindergarten teacher that I had at the time, who was actually still alive, and um, my mom had with the principal, the conversation was to put me in the special needs classroom where you stay in the room all day because I was unable to talk at the time. Mm. And so the kindergarten teacher saw something special in me. And I remember like it was yesterday. She, I, I remember this. She said that I see something special in him. Do not put him in the special needs pre-K in the special needs kindergarten classroom. He'll be able to do everything that a kindergartner needs to be able to do by the time he leaves. I remember that conversation. And so that's that's the reason why, you know, I chose to do the things I've done in terms of it, it comes down to when I was in fourth grade, I graduated speech, I was going to speech therapy all the way up to fourth grade. So in fourth grade, I graduated speech therapy. So this is what this is why I have a very high respect for speech therapists and what they do. And uh, when I was in fifth grade, that's when I really started, you know, helping tutoring people at school, reading to people. And I knew I knew from then on I wanted to do something in education, being a black man. And I knew from a young age that um, I wanted to hashtag defy statistics. So that's. So, so that's pretty much my my reasoning. Just my kindergarten teacher having that conversation with my parents and with their principal saying, don't put him in a special needs classroom. Man, you know, man, that's real. That's real. And I can I can kind of relate to that to a certain extent because I was in I'm 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 thinking that special needs and special education are two different departments. Um, but I know that I was in and out of special education classes and for me personally, I hated it, you know, and it wasn't until it was an educator. I was about 15 years old and my brother had a changing life conversation with me about 
just getting serious about my education, getting serious about life and it, it changed my life forever. And educators was also involved in that process of me, you know, changing and shaping the way I saw things, you know, saw different perspectives. So I can definitely relate. Now, I know that you mentioned before that you said something about the five statistics. Do you mind, you know, telling us what that's a, what's, the, what's that about when you, when you mean, what do you mean by that? Yes, sir. So when I was in, when I was in middle school, in Durham, North Carolina, at the time. This was around 1997, 1998. And back then, during that time in Durham, the statistic was out of um, out of 3,500 uh, youths in Durham between the ages of 13 and 18, that 65% of them would either be in a gang, part of a gang, or, um, or affiliated with a gang. Um, during that time. So they right. say that they say, according to the stats, that 65% of youth should be doing that. I want to be a part of the 35% that don't. Mm. So in the, in the neighborhood that's close to my house, at the time, back in the late 90s, only, uh, only 2% of the people in that housing project actually graduated from high school. I wanted to be in the 2% that graduate and not a part of the 98% that don't. So my life and, and what I try to communicate to kids is the things that you are not, the things that you are expected to do, do the opposite of. So that's mm -hmm. what I mean when I say defy statistics. Yeah. Wow, man. And, and so many students, man, including me, similar, similar background that, that grow up around that environment, but choosing the alternate route and choosing to be a part of that percent that says, I want to be on the winning side. I don't want to be on that side that's, that's going to lead me down to the wrong path. Exactly. So, so that's really refreshing, man. That's really great to hear. So now I know now you've passed all of that and now you are the principal. Kind of walk us through, you know, what was your, how did you lead up to becoming principal? You went from teacher to dean of students. Like explain those experiences as a teacher, as an assistant principal, now principal. If you don't mind, you know, I, I don't mind at all, brother. Okay. So, nice. so, in my, <laughs> so I actually started teaching when I was, so, so the first thing is, um, I went to college on a, um, on a scholarship for education. Uh, I think back when I was in middle school, I went to North Carolina Central University here, uh, in Durham, North Carolina. And at the time they were looking for, uh, more male students because at the time back in the late mid to late nineties, the enrollment of male, uh, female to male students was nine to one. So for every one male, there were nine female students. And so North Carolina Central University wanted to reach out to all the middle schools in the area and reached out to the local principals of each school. And they gave out scholarships. And the criteria was they had to be hardworking males uh, of color who wanted to study education. So my principal already knew that I wanted to be in education because I would always, I was a kid in school. I didn't get in trouble for, for, for being bad, but I did get in trouble when I asked my teachers questions like, do you really like your job? Um, because <laughs> my mom whooped me a lot because I, I mean, she thought that I was trying to cause trouble. And it's like, no, mom, I'm really, I really want to know because I really want to be a teacher. So I really, right. really like job, man. So, uh, so from there, I was one of the recipients of the scholarship. And so they kept track of me all the way through high school. And so like they kept track of my SAT scores and my GPA and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I got the scholarship my senior year. So I actually um, took enough credits to where I actually had enough to enter in as a uh, as a second semester freshman. And so during the time, I actually started substituting. I was a long-term substitute at a charter school in Durham. And so that kind of started the process for me while I was in college. And then I would do a lot of my volunteer hours, things like that, um, in school buildings. So for two, mm. like tutoring programs, um, uh, finishing out the year as a long-term substitute. I actually did it for volunteer hours. I didn't get paid. So mm. I had all of my volunteer hours before, I, before the end of my freshman year. So when I was, um, when I was, I actually graduated college early. So I started teaching the senior, my senior year. I was 20 years old when I started teaching. And so 
um, my first two years of teaching, my first three years of teaching were my toughest because I didn't have any classroom management skills. Um, although I had a presence, I've always commended a presence, but it was just those classroom management tidbits and pieces that I did not have. Hmm. And so it wasn't until my uh, my third year of teaching when my principal, uh, Dr. William Logan at Hillside New Tech High School at the time, actually uh, sent me, he says, um, Laws, I want to send you to a professional development on classroom management. And when you come back, I want you to present to the group what you've learned about classroom management. So Your principal I, sent you to that. My principal, my principal sent me to oh, that. Okay. Okay. He sent me to that because he he saw that, I, and I actually went back and looked at my old evaluations, and I saw that I was good in the content area, but I struggled with classroom management. So mm. he sent me to that training, and I and I think that that training, when I went to that training for that week, that opened my eyes. Mm. It, it opened my eyes. So that's when I really started creating all these systems in my classroom. Mm. Um, everything I did had a system. And so from that point on, I had not had any more issues with classroom management. And I said to myself, when I become a principal, this is what I'm going to do for my teachers. Like I'm going to be real with them. And if I see them struggling and, and if they need that professional development, I'm not going to hesitate to send them to it. And so, um, all that led up to, you know, I lost my license, um, because I didn't get it done in time because back then we had lateral entry. And then I got my license. I worked at a private school at the time, and then I got my license back. And then um, I was never a teacher of the year or anything like that. But um, a lot of teachers came into my classroom because they saw the systems that I had um, in my Spanish classroom. And so they kind of modeled after those systems. Like I was, for some reason, a model teacher with, you know, classroom expectations and systems. And so uh, that led up to... Um, me having me having more roles at school, like the department chair. I was the department chair a couple of times. Um, I was on the principal advisory committee where we would speak with the principal um, about issues facing teachers. Um, I would participate in um, we in North Carolina here. We have something called the North Carolina Association of Educators (NCAE), and so I would go to so I would be a part of those meetings. And they're the ones that kind of lobby for the teachers in terms of decision makers by the decision making by the legislators. So I would go and do those things. And I just said, I just said to myself one day, I, I think I will be, I think I have what it takes to be a great principal. And so then in the midst of me, um, in the midst of my Spanish teaching, I would, you know, take my course load to be the principal. And when I did my, my residency as a principal, that's when I, I was where I, I knew I was at that moment where I was supposed to be. Now, being a principal for me, is not the end all be all. That's not what I, that's not where I plan to end, but I, I achieved the dream because um, last thing I want to say before we move on is um, it took me, I finished my program in 2017 and it took me all of uh, two and a half years to find my first role after I think I went on the sum of about 60 interviews between uh, between 60? 60. Yes, sir. I kept tabs. So between 2000, uh, between 2017 and 2020, uh, uh, 2020, I had been on the sum of about 60 interviews where um, the first, the first, the first 20 of those interviews, they just said, thank you. And we wish you the best of luck on your future endeavors. But then after my first 20 interviews, I kind of tuned in to some people and got some development around interviewing. And then after that, I've been a finalist at all the interviews that I had up until I got this job. But the issue had been, they say, well, we were looking for someone who could fit. And I never knew what being a fit means. Um, but mm -hmm. now I do as a, as a principal. I know I actually know what it means when they say, you know, that I wasn't the right fit. Mm. And so I am where I am now because I took a risk. I took a risk. I moved, um, I moved three and a half miles away from, uh, not three and a half miles, Lord knows, three and a half hours away from um, my hometown 
um, in order to in order to get this opportunity. And I just said that I will go as far as I need to. Wow, man, we I'm not even ready to move on. I got some <laughs> precious ass like within that content you just provided. Yes, sir. Did you see, man, that we we gonna revisit that. I wanted to go back to. I wanted to go back to you mentioned something about classroom management. Yes, sir. What was it? Okay. First question is, mm-hmm. what 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 were you struggling in? Like, for, because some teachers may be watching, they may want to learn, you know, just about classroom management. What were some of the things that you were struggling with, and how exactly did that professional development help you to become better at classroom management skills? So the one thing that I can always, well, before I get into the struggle, the one thing that I always had a strength on is being able to relate to the students. Um, Being able to, the the relationship piece to me was not the issue. For me, the issue was setting boundaries. So in in effort to keep the relationships and not lose them, it it would be like I was the student's friend instead of their teacher and so, and so kids so kids were so when so for example if kids like were talking while i was talking i would just you know sit there and wait for them to stop and then i would continue i i didn't have anything in place to say this is what happens when you violate the expectations of the classroom i didn't have any of that um i didn't contact parents as much to establish relationships with them right away. I was afraid to call parents wow. because I thought that they would yell at me and I thought that they would, you know, cuss me out. So I didn't call them. And so I tried to keep everything in the classroom and the classroom and the class just did not flow like it, like a, like a class should flow in terms of having a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, mm-hmm. And transitions being communicated. So kids just came in the classroom and they sat down and I talked over them to get their attention instead of having a call and response or a countdown or whatever. Um, it, it was just like, I talked the content, I got everything out. The kids were learning, but I just did not have effective management practices. Mm-hmm. Got you, got you. And so what was it in professional development that they were able to teach you, like what were some of the tactics that you actually took away from that professional development and applied in your classroom? Well, I can tell you that. So the main thing I took away was to have expectations posted, like your, your three to five class expectations, have them posted and you should go over them daily and visit them daily. Um, also having your positive and your negative consequences posted. So mm-hmm. that way the students will know you know, what would happen when they did good. And also the flow in the process of what happens when they misbehave. Mm. So what happens the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, just so that they'll see what will happen and then revisit it on a daily basis. So I read a book, it was called, and they and they referenced this book a lot at this training. It was called, um, Harry Wong wrote, um, called The First Days of School. A lot of teachers refer to that book in their, especially in their first few years. So Harry Wong says that the first three weeks of school, you should go over your rules and expectations. Mm. Since then, um, and I'll talk about what I say now. Since then, but um, I learned about I learned about setting the expectations from Jump Street. Um, also, calling parents and having a good contact log. And not only to call parents for for negative things, yeah. but also to call for positive things. And um, what did it for me was my principal at another high, at my, I went back and taught at my alma mater. And he had what was called a positive parent call campaign. And so it was an effort to have over 6,000 positive phone calls for a school year. And so... Mm-hmm. And so I learned to keep a log from that training. I learned to post my expectations, um, positive and negative consequences. I also learned from that training that when you go over to a student and you're in, in proximity to them, 
if they if they if you're if you're um teaching something and they're talking and having their own conversations, just going over there is actually a consequence because then you can do your nonverbal cues. So my favorite nonverbal cue is so wow. and so when I do that, that is my nonverbal way of giving that student a warning. Mm. And so I took that, I, I took that training, and that training was done by um Dr. Carolyn Reedham, who is well known out in Nevada, and to the point where she has her, and she's an, she's a woman of color, and she has a school named after her in Las Vegas. Oh wow. Watch and out, so, man. so she came and did that training and I, I learned so much from her during that time. And I took, like I said, I took all that to heart. So then the very next day, the next day was the that 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 training changed my life so that the next day I started using those practices right away and I never had another issue with classroom management. That nonverbal, the nonverbal communication, I've never heard of that before. Yes, sir. So, in your personal, you know, just personal experience, why do you think that's more? Why do you think that's more effective than verbally? Like, what? It depends on. It really depends on the person. So, hmm. um, I'm I'm pretty I'm a pretty big man, and um, I stand at six one, and you know, pretty hefty. So, me being in the proximity of of much smaller kids. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and doing my nonverbal cues. Um, but I really think it just depends on the person and it depends on the personality of the person. So when I come into a classroom, I bring a lot of energy. And so not everybody has the same energy level that I have when I'm right. in classes. And so it may not, that nonverbal cueing may not work for that person, but just going over there and being in the proximity of it, that still works. And you and some, something as simple as taking your hand and putting it on that desk. That's a nonverbal cue because it'll let the student know that they're being disruptive. And so and, and the key is to pre-program that in the students when going over expectations. So saying something such as, if I see you talking, I'm going to come over there and I'm going to put my hand on your desk. This is a signal. This lets you know that you're talking and that I need you to stop, or you're playing around and I need you to stop. That is going to be a warning, kind of, it's a warning system that, that I use in my classroom. And so just have, so if a teacher is not usually that person, just front loading that information in the students when going over expectations, then they'll know when that happens, what it means. And you know what, and I, I like that because this this semester, you know, as I'm pursuing my undergrad, I work at an after-school program, mm -hmm. and I can honestly say that I one of my one of my struggles, well, one of my weak links was when we did the um, end of the year evaluation was classroom management. I have gotten better at it mm -hmm. working with the kids, but it's still a struggle for me. And sometimes I just get I, honestly, I just get tired of saying the same thing over and over again, but with that nonverbal, I don't necessarily have to, you know, speak. I can just make that signal and then, but of course I have to pre-program them, like you said, yeah. at the beginning. That is really cool, man. That is really cool. I like that. And then if I can add, if I Go can ahead. add to it. Of course. Um, so uh, when I was a teacher, I always used some kind of slide presentation format, right? But the key is, when I first started, I would always stand in the front of the class. And so I would stand in front of the class and I would look in the classroom and see, you know, what's going on in the classroom. But something as simple as having your, having your presentation still the same or whatever you're using, um, but then having a clicker. I ha so, I, so I have, I call it Old Faithful. So I brought that clicker back in... Uh, 2011, and it's a clicker that you can use to advance your slideshow, mm -hmm. and you can use it um as a mouse, as a computer mouse. And so, matter of fact, this is my book bag in my room, but I, I carry Old Faithful with me everywhere I go. I've had Old Faithful that long, <laughs> but just just taking just taking Old Faithful and walking around the classroom while on the while on the on the presentation. 
creates more of a presence. And so mm. walking walking around the room and do, doing the same thing, but I'm standing in more than one spot. So when I so when I was a teacher, I wouldn't just stand in front of the class. I would go to this spot, to that spot, to this spot, and just walk around the room, engage, and see what people were doing at the same time. So, wow. so that was a method. So that was a method to my madness. Oh, I see. So. <laughs> <laughs> I see you got some real systems. Wow. Okay. Okay. That's pretty cool, man. And now I do want to touch on. I do want to touch on still similar to classroom management. Now, I know that you were saying like that was a struggle for you. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you were fearful of like, okay, if I put these expectations, set these things into place that the kids are not going to be cool with me no more. Cause I know some teachers worry about, you know, make being friends with the kids and some, everybody has their own opinion on it. But was that one of the fears that you had? Like you would lose those relationships with those kids if you put those expectations into place. Most definitely it was. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't, I really didn't think that um, at the time, I didn't think that I could still have a positive relationship with students and set expectations all at the same time mm-hmm. I didn't, I, and, and, and set boundaries. I didn't think that I could do that. I thought it was one or the other, mm-hmm. but I learned, I learned very quickly that that's not the case. Yeah. So. Yeah. Got you. Got you. And so let's talk a little bit about the 60 interviews, man, that's, that's a, that's very inspiring. So you said the first 20 interviews, you said that you weren't a good fit, but say, you say now, you know what they meant when they said that, what do you think that they were trying to communicate when they said that? If I can be real honest, be real honest, I'm going to be. So, um, one thing that I learned in this process early on is not only being a man of color, but I'm a big man of color. Mm. And I think that a lot of, a lot of the schools that I interviewed at said that although I interviewed well, cause I mean, the first 20 interviews I was, you know, still, I call that the getting my feet wet period. So I was just trying to, you know, I guess figure out. I, I had the training from like the be- one of the best universities, in my opinion. So I I knew what I was doing, but just the interview process was the interview process. People don't talk very much about the interview process, but that's an important part of it. You have to know how to interview. Like you can't just go into an interview and spit out numbers and spit out facts and spit out data and spit out all these things. You actually have to do your research and homework on the school the area that the school is in and the community that the school is in. Um, so what I mean when I, what I meant when I said, you know, being a fit, sometimes being a fit actually meant, well, they already have somebody who have the same skill set that I had. So I wasn't a good fit. Mm. Um, somebody. So, so um, the systems that they have in place, I would not be able to fit into their system because of the way that they do things. So I can give an example of that right quick. So I, so I interviewed at a school in um, Eskom County, which is not too far from, uh, from Durham It's near the Eastern coast of North Carolina. And so I interviewed at the school and it had, um, it was one of the lowest schools in um, North Carolina. So I said, okay, so I can take my skill set to this school because they need it. It's like, it's obvious that they need it, but the things that I am able to do, I was bilingual Spanish speaking. There was, there was not a large Spanish speaking population there, but there were a large, a large population of African-American students, um, specifically males. There's a high population of African-American males, me being an African-American male. And there was um, Caucasian leadership. Okay. So I wasn't a good fit in that situation because because they were not looking for um they were not looking for an african-american male at the time at that school oh right and so i found out so so being me 
I found out later, like when people, when I interview for jobs and then they fill the positions and then when the school year starts, I actually go back and find out who it is that they hired. Really? Really, I do that because that yeah. lets me know, that lets me know that most of the time when they say that I'm not a good fit, it has nothing to do with my skill set. Wow. But it has everything, in my opinion, to do with my either my skin color, my um, gender, or my stature, my stature. Because I'm a big man. And so I know sometimes they think that maybe bigger people will tire out easily. They think that bigger people are not able to like move around the school and things like that. They don't tell you that. This is this this is an unwritten rule. So they just then they just say you weren't fit for what we were looking for at the moment. Mm. And that's not always the case. But I just think that a few of those interviews that I had that I knew, I was a finalist at um, at about 35 to 40 of those interviews before I got this one. So it's not that I didn't have the skill set to interview, but it was something else that they were looking for. I did go into some all-white school districts. I did go into some, um, because because uh, Principal Baruchi Kafele is who I follow a lot. I subscribe Ooh. to Principal, Principal, his name is Principal Kafele. Oh, yeah, I heard of him. And I, so know. I, I, I subscribed to him. And the one thing he said that resonated with me and it still resonates with me to this day is that your job, where you from where you are right now, your ideal job may not be where you are right now. It may be a drive or even a flight away. Mm. So, so, that, so that stuck with me because that let me know that where I am right now, I'm passionate about this area. But this not this may not be the area where I end up making a difference in, and so I I took that with me, and I hadn't I hadn't really taken risks, but it wasn't until I saw this but this position, where I decided, man, you know what, I have nothing to lose, let's take this risk, and, you know, when when you go to three interviews at a school instead of just two, you know they love you. Wow, so. And kind of walk us through the mindset mentally, because I mean, let's be real. You know, a lot of people would have said after three interviews, man, maybe it's not for me. This right. is not my calling. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, out like three interviews because right. it can get discouraging when someone experienced rejection. So, were there moments and times where you said because of these things that's against me, because of your your you know you being an African American male and you saying you being a big guy, were there times where you just like got sad or you like man I want to quit or man you know or walk away? Kind of walk us through like emotion, like how were you really feeling like through that process? Because people sure don't talk can. about that. I sure so. can. Um, I told my wife I wanted to give up. I don't even want to do this no more. And, yeah. I, I, and I had gotten to the point in where I was in my teaching where you can get bored in teaching. Mm. If, if you, if so, my thing is I've always learned new innovations in terms of teaching instructional strategies that actually work and are effective. And I got to the point where I, I mean, no matter what the school was, I had gotten, I had gotten bored because I mean, it's not saying that I'm, I'm not better than anybody else, but right. you really can get bored in the teaching profession if if it's not where you want to end up. So I knew I wasn't I knew I didn't want to be a teacher for 30 years. Some people yes. can do that. Some people can do that and be fine. Like, yeah, that, that is cool. But for me, I know I'm destined for higher things. And so mm -hmm. during this time, it was it was very it was very depressing. Um, mm -hmm. I have a 13 year old son who. At the time when I was looking for jobs, um, I wouldn't spend the time with him. I would just yeah. go through this mundane routine of going to work, going home, you yeah. know, doing things at home. And it just repeated itself. Yeah. And I would smile through it all. But deep down inside, it was just like, you know, I know I was good enough for that job. Why didn't I get it? Yeah. Or I know I'm good enough for this job in the district. Why didn't I get it? Yeah. And so yeah. It, was a lot, it was a lot of that. Yeah, I interviewed for a lot of jobs in, in the district that I was in in Durham, and I just yeah. I, I just did not. Um, I guess I didn't have what they were looking for, or they already knew who they were going for. So then my mindset was, man, I'm just a formality. Like, like, wow. am I even going to be considered for this role, or is it just because you have to go through your formalities and 
you know, go through your interview, your people. And I, I, I learned early on that the higher you go, the, the higher up you go, the more political it is. And that yeah. depressed and that depressed me because, yeah. because it's like you can't be you can't you can't be pure hearted and be a politician. Is what I learned. Mm. And so, really? and so I mean, mm. and there are a lot of there now. Granted, there are a lot of politicians out there that are that are pure at heart. I'm just saying that to make a, to to receive a comment that I did that said like um, you can't be you can't be pure hearted and be a politician. So it's like the higher up you go in education, the more political it is. Like it I makes believe sense. That. I and believe so, that. And so I feel like a lot of times, and I'm not, and, and I have to say that I'm not a brown noser, but it's like I've had to, you know, really kiss some butt in order to get where I am, if I'm being honest. That's weird. Just because, just because the higher you go, the more political it is. And it's, it's, and it's not really about what you know, it's who you know at the top. So if yeah. you know if you know people, thank is I didn't know anybody here in Asheville. So that kind of like that myth was debunked right there. Yeah. But during the time when I was looking for these jobs and interviewing for these jobs, um, I'm gonna just talk about one experience that kind of shaped everything for me. Talk about it. It was um I put a Facebook post on um, my Facebook page one time that said and this was I think it was in twenty eighteen when I put this post up. And this encouraged me to just keep going. Because 2017, 2018 was a rough time for me because of that and because of going on interviews and not having success. I asked I asked my Facebook family on Facebook to pray for me. So I had a, a former student of mine came on and uh, he reached out to me and said, Mr. Laws, I don't know what you're going through, but I just want you to know how much you impacted me. So... I did a I did some culinary demonstrations in my class where I made breakfast burritos in Spanish class, and the kids had to follow along with the recipe in Spanish, and we like conjugated the verb in Spanish for like how you to do things, right? Mm -hmm. So, so the kid actually um, told me that that day um, something happened in their home, and they did not have any food that morning, and then he came to class, and he knew that he were making breakfast burritos and it like inspired him. So now he's a chef in two kitchens and has his own catering business. Oh, he, was, wow. he was like, Mr. Laws, I don't know what you're going through, but I want you to know that you inspired me the day when you made mm -hmm. breakfast as a Spanish teacher, period. And the day that you made those breakfast burritos in class changed my life because I kept that recipe. Uh -huh. So anytime that I got hungry or something, I made breakfast burritos at home. Wow. And you know what I said? I said that day for it. I said, I said somebody out there has worse problems than me. Mm. So I'm I'm not gonna even sit up here and sweat this because, um, and a lot of people have said, well, listen, it's all in God's timing. And at the time, I was like, man, that's so cliche for people to say, mm. but it's true. Mm. It's true, and I and I believe that wholeheartedly. And I mm. think that experience combined with me actually taking time to understand what they meant when, when what people meant when they say, well, you'll find your position. It's all in God's timing. Yeah. And yeah. Then, so that experience got me out of my depression that I was going through during that time just because it somebody else has worse problems than me. I'm, I'm up here fretting and getting angry because I can't get a position. It'll come when God wants it to. Mm. It's funny, man. Actually, interesting fact. I know you said you were part of a chapter. I'm actually part of the Georgia so the Aspire Georgia Associations of Educators. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a part of that chapter. That was, that was just an interesting fact. But man, that's um, that's 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 tough, man. That is tough. I meant to ask you. It was a question that really came to my mind. But I lost it. Oh man, <laughs> I lost yeah. it. I lost it. I lost it. It was a good question. Yeah, but I lost it. Good but, <laughs> but man, that's that's a lot. And you know, I actually have been reading this Damon John book, and um, he mentions how, you know, he mentions a lot of cliche sayings, and sometimes it's easy to overlook those. But like he, Damon John, you know, he's an owner of football. Yeah, he yeah. was saying how. 
those may be cliche sayings, but he he doesn't really necessarily put his energy towards that. He pays attention to what those cliches, those words are saying. And a lot of those cliche sayings are, you know, are very true. So I was just attesting to to what you were saying towards so that. that. So was that um was that rising grind? Yeah, I'm still reading it. I think I'm reading it too. I just I actually just started. <laughs> did man. That book would change your life. <laughs> All right. It's inspiring. It's really inspiring. For me to continue reading it, then I will continue to read it to the end. Oh, yeah, most definitely, man. So now you're here. Yes, you're, sir. You're in the principal position now. So how has things been for you as a principal through COVID? Oof, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I got the position back in 2020 when COVID first was like when COVID was happening. So, oh, okay. Man, I, when I, I tell you right now, if I had to write a book on being a principal during COVID, it would be this thick. Oh, wow. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> Just a different, just a different set of challenges. Um, but I think the thing that uh, that helped me through it was the fact that I actually taught virtually before. Um, I taught at an online charter school before I got into my teaching position that led up to to, to shutting down from COVID. Mm. If that makes sense, and so. I had a good, I had a good thorough knowledge base in terms of teaching virtually, and and so a lot of teachers like talk virtually the same way they talk in the classroom. It's like no, you can't do that. Like you have to, you know, you know, really engage kids and get their attention and things like that because they got a lot of distractions at home. So it, it was very tough because, I mean, teachers were at home. Everybody was like, you know, in their own zones, but just the time away from each other created a big gap in terms of trust and in terms of just being able to interact socially mm, because mm. we all know that, you know, school is not just learning books and, and learning subjects, but it really is about socializing and socialization, being able to, um, appropriately collaborate with people, and when like we had we had a year and a half, almost two years of not being able to do that, and it shows. Mm, mm, I mean, mm. and we're still and we're still in the thick of it. We're, we're still in the thick of COVID. Like, I, it's going to be something that will be with us for a long time. And just you know, we have a two we have a two gap a two year gap in terms of trust. And being able to act appropriately socially and um, just the, the learning gaps are huge. And if yeah. they and if they already had a learn a huge learning gap, COVID exacerbated it and made it worse. Yeah. And so just yeah. navigating through all those things. It has yeah. been it's been a it's been a challenge, but it's a it's for me, honestly, I have a I have a very optimistic attitude and have had an optimistic that. attitude. And I think for me, because you know, I finally got the role I wanted, and maybe that's why I'm optimistic. But then yeah. I've learned to, I've always been optimistic, you know, in the midst of everything. And so just trying to bring that optimism back and yeah. help people to realize that, you know, um, these are things that are, there are some things that are in our control. Like I subscribe to Stephen Covey. And so Covey talks about things that we have control over. Um, and, and your circle of influence and things that you don't have control over. And that's in your circle of concern, mm. um, in your area of concern. And so I have control over my interactions with people, um, how I set my expectations, um, my response to stimuli. I have control over those things, but right. I can't control how anybody else is feeling. I can't control um, all the stuff that goes on in, in the world and in education and politics. I can't control that. Only thing yeah. I can control is, you know, how do we make school a safe place for not only for our um, students, but also our teachers. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I'll say before you move on is um, I just encompassed, I, I've always encompassed this mindset that school is really a child's home away from home simply because um, they spend the most time, if I'm being honest, they spend the most time at school when school is in. Mm -hmm. And so 
Um, some kids spend upward of 10 hours, 12 hours at school out of their day, whether it's for before care, sports, after school, whatever. Um, and so kids can, kids don't get the luxury of transferring or going to another school unless their parents tell them that they're going to be going to another school or they're vocal enough to go to another school. Mm. But, and so they should feel the same way at school that they do at home for the most part. And then like your teachers, they can, your teachers can leave after a year or after six months, they can say, I want to go to a different school. I don't want to work here anymore. And they can leave. But for the students, it really is a home away from home. And so that's yeah. kind of the, that's kind of the thing that's gotten me through and the mentality that's gotten me through. Mm. But it's mm. been rough, 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 mm. rough, rough, rough. Yeah. Yeah. Now, 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 has there been at your school? Has there been a high uh, turnover rate? Turnover rate with teachers at your school, or just in your district? With COVID going on right now, have you have you guys been affected by that? Man. The turnover rate. Ooh, yes, sir. So, oh, yeah. so our charter school, our charter school is its own district. So, you know, charter schools mm -hmm. are their own districts. Oh yeah. And okay. so, yeah, you know, we've had we've had a hard time with substitutes this year. Um, just in, in, so I'm, I'm working at the middle school. I'm a, I'm one of the principals at the middle school. And so, um, I think we've lost, um, we have 29 teachers on staff. We've lost, um, upwards of eight teachers this year so far. And then we have like three more that are leaving at the end of the year. And so, so we've lost 11 out of 29. Um, Ooh, and, it's that, it, and it's that way. Pretty much, um, in our high school, we have a higher turnover rate this year. It's just the high school's turn mm. to to lose people this year, and so our mm. elementary school is still holding firm, um, only losing one teacher. But right. um, middle and high school have been really rough for us this year. Yeah, yeah. In terms of turn, in terms of turnover, um, we had a lot more students leaving as well mm. um, because of various things. Mm. And this isn't even the platform for that, but um, we had, um, so our school has taken, so so our school, the demographics of our school is like 75% uh, Caucasian um, and 14% uh, African-American, 11% um, or so, um, 10 to 11% Hispanic. So we've had a lot of turnover from students because we've taken a stance on um, we're going to address equity and um, we're going to address racism. And they wrote a letter to the um, families at our school talking about George Floyd and how we're going to have conversations. Oh. Um, and so a lot of our families that lean more towards the conservative side have said, well, y'all are talking about race in school, so we're going to withdraw our kids. And so, um, so, and so the main thing I'll just say it is <laughs> because it's just, it's just my opinion that hey, okay, the, the conversation the conversation changes. Yeah, when you have when you have your first student of color coming to your school, that's when the conversation changes. Exactly. So I hundred percent agree. Like, man. I think it should be talked about more about racism and about the, the yes, different events that's going on. Man, I don't know, man. I just feel like a lot of schools try to shy away from what what's really happening right now because they say they say that it's um they say that talking about that brings about critical race theory, but people don't yes. understand that critical race theory is a PhD level concept. It has yeah. it. it Everything we're talking about has nothing to do with that. We want our kids to be able to think on their own instead of their opinions being spoon-fed to them. And so that, mm. it, that's, that's not critical race theory to me. That's just mm. critical thinking. Mm. Because if, if we don't, and, and, and the one thing that I try to say is, you know, they're trying, we got to think outside the box here. And that's, and that's what, and that's what this is all about. Because if, you know, if they think the same way all the way up through life, then everything is going to be critical race theory. Everything's going to be. So if you, if you, if you grow up learning one thing and knowing only one thing in your lifetime, everything that you try to learn about and everything that's brought in is going to be critical. Some critical, some kind of theory. 
Mm. So like critical race theory, or if you only know one way to make money and then you learn those several different ways to make money, then it's going to be critical economics theory. And yeah. <laughs> everything's going to be a theory when it's just all straight truth and facts. Yeah. Critical race theory is a hot topic in education right now. Yes, sir. Yeah, it definitely is. And now before we wrap things up, of course, I got I got two more questions. Yes, sir. I know that I mentioned talking to you about what had happened with the school shooting. Um, I definitely want to just get your thoughts on it because I know, man, when I just everything that's going on with these shoes, man, I honestly broke down in tears. I'm not afraid to say it. Like, I cried when I heard about what happened to those kids, um, the guy coming in shooting up the school. So I just kind of want to take a few minutes to um, just just kind of for you to express how you feeling. How, how are you doing as an educator? Because I want to be able to utilize my platform to also talk about some things that are currently going on right now. You know, so I just wanted to kind of check in on how you feeling. How are you doing? You know, what's your thoughts on it? Well, um, I actually cried this week. Um, yeah. And I am a person that always try to think about when I'm in my school building, I go around every day before school starts and I actually pray over every door in that building when nobody's there. Wow. And I, and I do that because um, at any moment, without looking and without even knowing about it, the same thing could happen to me at my school or to mm -hmm. us at our school. But we had, and honestly, we practiced the, and honestly, we practiced our active shooter drill two weeks ago. Mm. Because I don't know. It was just like we needed to practice our safety drills. And so we practiced our active shooter drill two weeks ago. That bothered me. It bothered mm. me on so many levels. Um, yeah. And those children, um, they didn't deserve that. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, so many, and, and we're getting all these reports now and I'm listening to the news and all these reports are coming out and all these things. The bottom line is uh, two teachers and a classroom of kids lost their life. Yeah. And what and what could have and what could have been I mean just honestly what could have been prevented. Mm. And mm. and what it does for me is we on on the on Friday we had our celebration day at, at school for our middle school students. Mm. And I I don't make it a point to cry in front of my kids. Yeah. But that day yeah, you know, I went up there. I was I was talking to the kids in the auditorium, but I went up the up the stairs and got on their level, sat beside, stood beside them, and said, "It is our job to keep you safe here, and that is what I will make a resolution that we will do everything in our power to make sure that tragedies like this do not happen at exactly. our school." Mm. And I really, I feel for all those families. Yeah. I feel for, I, I feel for the, the families of the teachers and the families of the students. And I, I just, will, I, I, I don't think I will ever be the same. Mm. So everything I do is I will be a lot more intentional. I always go like every day, I make it a point to step inside every single classroom that I, that I'm over. I go in and check in on the children, make sure that the children are, are feeling safe, making sure that the teachers are feeling safe. I, I step into those classrooms every day for that reason. Hmm. Because at any and I and I make it a point to check in on children all the time. Because hmm. at any moment something like that can happen. That's I go I, I go and prop all, I go and close all my doors. I make I, I, I make sure that all the doors are we have key cards. So I just go and make sure all of our doors are closed. I look on the cameras to make sure that, you know, I've been doing this since day one, though, looking and seeing if everything's okay on our campus. Um, mm -hmm. Just protecting our campus, because our campus sits out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And so I'm extra careful. Yeah. I, don't, I just don't, I don't want that to happen at my school. Yeah, yeah. 
And how's the security set up there? Is do are there security um like police officers? Or? No, sir. So mm -hmm. since we're so since we're a charter school, gotcha. Um, so we're a charter school in um in the in the county, and so we do have an SRO that we consult with. Got you. Um, on issues, but we don't have an active presence at our school. And I have a serious, because if you remember a few years back, there was this big deal about SROs in schools and, um, and the harm that can happen when they're in schools because of the few things that have happened in, in the few cases where an SRO has been on, you know, has, has you know, had their knees in the back of a student of color and, you know, and all these things that surround SROs in a negative light. So now what I'm hearing is a lot more schools need a lot more SROs. And so I'm like, an SRO is um, trained on serving schools. They're, they're sheriffs or police officers, but they are specifically for schools because they're really there to educate, not only to protect the school, but they're also there to educate the kids on um, all things legal. Mm. They're, they're there to educate the kids on what can happen if they don't make the right choices. Yeah, like they they have a specific role, and it's like it's like across America, there's a convoluted sense of what an SRO does because mm. the only thing that they see is what they see in the media, saying that. Oh, an SRO, they did this. The SRO had their knees in the back of a child's back or they put a, a kid in handcuffs or whatever without even really looking at what they do because they, they serve a vital role in the school as well. Right. Right. That's very true. And um, thank you for sharing your thoughts and thank you for just, you know, expressing how you feel, you know, as um as I'm um, pretty sure a lot of educators are just trying to figure out, and just the word, just the word, man, just really trying to figure out how to navigate through something that happens, unfortunately. Yes, sir. But uh, my last question will be is, I know that you mentioned that you don't plan on staying at the principal role. So where do you see yourself in the next five years? I always ask that question. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> so in the next five years, um, I see myself um, starting and finishing. Um, I said I wasn't going to do my doctorate, but I, see myself finishing a doctoral program and I really want to be on um, if, if I'm if I'm not a superintendent by then I'm okay with that but um, I really want to be one of two things number one either a superintendent or number two um, being elected onto the lawmaking body that makes decisions around education Ooh, we got some big dreams on the podcast today. Because one, because one thing I've one thing I've learned in this in this role and in the mm. game is that if you really want to see change, then you got to get elected to the seats of the officials that make the decisions. Mm. Because because it's it's not going to happen. I have no control over what the what the for for North Carolina, for example. There's a there's a Department of Instruction, a Department of Education. If I really want to. Um, if I really want to see change in the state of North Carolina in terms of education, I need to get elected to the North Carolina, um, the North Carolina Senate because they're the ones that the 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 um, GOP or the Senate they're the ones that are making the decisions about education in the state of North Carolina. Hmm. But it's all based on federal law, but there's state law as well, and so being on the state board allows me to lend a voice in making decisions for education. Hmm. Hmm. And that's real, um, Sherrod, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I agree, man, when it comes to education, you know, it's only so much of a difference that you can make as a teacher. It's only so much um, as a principal because you still have overhead. You know, yes, sir. you still have people that you have to answer to. Yes, so, sir. But I, I, I admire your dreams and your goals, man, and I just want to Say that I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, man. Well, that is all I have for you today. And that that is the podcast. Yes, sir. I'm gonna close out. All right, I'm gonna uh leave you from the um leave you from the stream. All right. All right.
Welcome to the Schoolhouse Podcast, where it is jumping. Man, Sherrod, he dropped some gems from classroom management to some of the things that uh, some of the things that he experienced with just going through the different emotions and feelings of applying for 60 positions before he actually got the job. I just thought that was really inspiring. Of course, we covered about the school shooting of what happened. I mean, it was very unfortunate of what happened to those kids. And so I'm definitely, you know, just I'm praying and wishing the best for all the schools that are going through this right now as a nation, you know, so that is the Schoolhouse Podcast. That is all that I have for you today. Thank you for tuning in and I am out.